True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to I Killed an Intruder. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporters, a huge thank you goes out to Anae Janssen van Rensburg, Renelle Faree, Jeanette Ferreira, Kate, Irma, Doretha Rothwell, Taryn Desfontanes, Annika Becker, Bashka Choznowski, Adelpha Mark and Paige Miller, as well as Ilka Zenskarali, Shannon Treber and Jesse Heisemann for their donations on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. It really is such a big help, and I really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to help keep the show growing and improving. Today's episode brings a few different issues to the fore. Among them, the high rates of crime in our country and the ongoing fear that many people live with that they'll become victims of crime. It also addresses the reasons that many criminals begin a life of crime, the impact of drugs on the life of a user, and the choices that addicts make that lead them down the wrong path. In this episode, I will only be using the first name of both parties involved at the request of Monique, who will be telling her story. Monique is a listener of True Crime South Africa, and she contacted me on Instagram to share her story. As soon as I heard the details, I immediately thought that others could gain great value from hearing the story, and she agreed to talk to me. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Monique is 52 years old. For many years, she worked as a teacher and then had to retire when fibromyalgia started to wreak havoc on her body. She lives in Middleburg with her husband and pets, including tortoises, cats and dogs. Monique is no stranger to trauma. In 2009, she lost her mother to cancer. In 2016, her uncle was shot at his small holding in Pretoria. And then in 2018, her father, still mourning the loss of his wife and brother and struggling with terminal illness, shot himself as Monique and her husband drove away from his house after a visit. She described to me how, due to the incapacity her illness has caused, she's had to slow down and retreat into her home. She can no longer move around without pain and has set up a haven for herself in her bedroom at home. 
as she often struggles to sleep and would disturb her husband, who works full-time. He sleeps in his own room in the house. Hearing Monique talk about the traumas she's suffered would make anyone think that this woman has been through more than enough for one person. But three months ago, death came knocking at Monique's door again, and this time in a way she could never have imagined. On the morning of the 23rd of September 2020, Monique's husband went off to work as usual. Her sister arrived to help her feed the tortoises and water the plants, and Monique tried to walk with her into the backyard, but started to feel ill, and told her sister she was going to lie down. When her sister was ready to leave, she called out to Monique to come and lock the security gate on her bedroom, but Monique was unable to get up, and her sister ended up locking the gate, and tossing the keys back into her room. When Monique tells her story, you will hear her explain how her bedroom is cut off from the rest of the house for the most part. It's difficult for her to hear anything in her room. She's always been extremely security conscious, and she describes her house as Fort Knox. Monique grew up around guns, and has been taught how to handle a gun by her father at a young age. She's always owned one, and sleeps with her gun close by. At this point, I'm going to let Monique share her story with you. It was the 23rd of uh, September last year, 2020, and I've been in my own lockdown for already almost four years because I am sick, and I... I have my own room apart from my husband lives in another room because uh, I live on, you know, my own time, my own hours. I am awake when I am not in too much pain. And that's when I do Bible journaling. And basically faith is a big part of my life. And then other times when I feel the pain is too much or I feel too sick or whatever, I would take medicine and I would sleep. I, I did not live according to time, date, or days. I, I, re- I barely or really never knew, you know, what the day was or, or the date, even because my life wasn't about that anymore. It was about living from hour to hour. Monique then goes on to explain to me that the house she and her husband rent is located next to an electrical business in Middleburg. The business used to be managed by her brother-in-law, and is owned by the landlord she rents from. If you look at pictures of the house, it basically shares a parking lot with the business. This will become important later. Monique also explains that when they moved into the house, it was actually a business premises, which they had to convert into a home. Originally, the house was actually two smaller houses that were connected. This is also important, because it gives you an idea of why Monique says that her room was pretty much cut off from the rest of the house, both in position and in terms of sound. To illustrate this, she recalls an occasion when her sister had forgotten her keys and sat hooting at the front door for ten minutes, and Monique heard nothing. Back to Monique. 
I had three dogs then. The one was here in my room because he was very ill. And the other two dogs was my dad's dog that I had, you know, took in after he died. And the other small dog, Tinky, they they would always lie on Maurice's bed and or in the front of the house as a lookout, you know, waiting for him or whatever. The cats would be here with me. The dogs would, there's a little hole in the door where the dogs and cats can go in and out of, you know, to do their things. But um, the dogs would not really come to my side of the house because they are, you know, afraid of the cats. When the cats moved in, this is my sister's cats. You know, they were not used to cats, so they would chase the cats and the, the cats can, you know, they can hit very hard. And so it, the, the, there was always this war between the two dogs and, and the four cats. So the dogs never really came to my room because it was like a lion's den here for them. And then I was uh, sleeping Wednesday morning, yes. Uh, I didn't know what the time was or anything. Um, I had to, when the police came and they asked me, when did this happen? I had to take my cell phone and look up the, you know, the, the logs to see when I phoned to work out more or less what time it happened. But I can tell you now it must have happened about quarter past 10 in the morning. I was sleeping and the next moment, well, something jumped onto my stomach and it was like, oh, you know, like my wind was almost, it felt like somebody was, you know, hit me in the, in the stomach. And it was um, Rambo, the my dad's dog. And he was like shaking and terrified and, and I didn't know what was going on. So I, you know, put him back down on the floor and I always speak to my dogs like they, all my animals, even my fish, like my, they are my children because I do not have children. So I would like go, you know, Roxy's what's wrong? What is happening? I don't understand. Why are you shaking? Why are you so scared? And whatever. And the, he was like, he jumped back onto the bed and all four cats were lying on my bed. And I was like, no, no. And then I saw Tinky come running from you know, the other side of the house and she ran through that little door. She didn't even stop in my room and, and uh, Rambo refused to get off my bed. He was, he was violently shaking. I've never seen a, a dog in such a state. A uh, year before that, um, a snake entered our house and I'm definitely afraid of snakes. It wasn't a poisonous snake, but, um, you know, nobody likes snakes in the, in, in the house, you know. So I always sleep with my gun under my mattress because I'm a, a woman alone from early the morning until late at the night. My husband is a rep. Uh, he works for mines and power stations. So he leaves very early and he comes home late. You know, you, you have to look after yourself. You're going to say, well, uh, uh, so what? I cannot lock my gun in the safe because this, it's the other side of the house, and it's just how you. It, for me, it's stupid not to not to have your gun with you if, if you can. If you can have it with you, it's. I'm not carrying it with me, but it's it's available in a, like a second. So at that moment, I thought maybe another cat entered the house, or there was a snake, and that it even might have, you know, bitten um, Rambo because I'm often at the vet, and I saw dogs that have been bitten by snakes before, and he he behaved more or less the same way, and I was like, who am I going to call? There's nobody that I can call that can come help me to get the snake out and I don't even want to see the snake. I am so afraid. So I took my gun because I was like, if, if there is a snake, I am, I'm going to shoot it. I'm sorry. I'm, 
I'm going to shoot it. I'm, I cannot turn my back on it because it might, you know, slip it away and hide somewhere else. And, and then I took my cell phone and I, in my right hand and uh, I opened the, the security gate. And by then the cats and everybody, everyone was around my legs and they were walking with me and, and Rambo was calm. And, and I, and I said, okay, Bruxis, let's go. Let's see what's, what's going on. So I started walking. I was loud. Okay. So that was one thing. I was loud. Um, I'm myself. And, you know, so I now know he then heard me and knew that there was somebody in the house. Before that, this criminal didn't think there was anybody in the house because I never leave my house. Um, if, if you scoped out my house for a month, you, you wouldn't even know that I have lived here because I never go to the front of the house or leave the house on the outside. My car used to stand there, but I, I, at that stage, I lent it to my, you know, to a friend. So it looked like very, like this, there was nobody here at all. It looked like wonderful place to break in nobody was going to bother you and that's exactly what happened he he got in um apparently through the window which i will explain to you a little bit later why wasn't able to um flee he is a man called mongezi he has broken into monique's house by squeezing himself through a 30 by 30 centimeter opening between her burglar bars He's spent some time collecting items he wants to steal and stacking them by the window. As he hears Monique approaching, he does not attempt to squeeze himself back out. Presumably the unbelievable feat would take too long. Instead, he makes a fateful decision. He pushes himself up against a wall in the study, in a gap next to a bookshelf, and waits. I just walked um, and I was talking and I was like, just having the gun here next to my side, you know, relaxed. I was, I was relaxed. I was just stressed that I was going to find a snake. And so I started to walk from my room, um, which is about, let's say 15 meters to where he was. That was the spare room or the study. And we moved one cupboard to the left of the end where you enter the door just to make it seem more spacious. And it, it, it is very spacious, but that gave him a place to hide. So when he heard me coming, he would stand next to on the left side of the cupboard and I would come in through the study or spare room and there's no way that I, I would be able to see him. So when I came into the dining room that's basically uh is huge and uh that's where also where the front you can say the front door is or whatever it's um basically sliding doors with wood panels and whatever but it's there's also a security gate we have added um, chains and extra locks on it because those gates are easily to break open but with the lock the, the chains it's it's impossible unless you have a, a special bolt cutter or whatever you know that you carry with you there's just no way that you can enter this house Everything looked fine and calm to me. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. And I just walked slowly because I'm, I do struggle with my breathing. 
Um, then I stopped at the entrance of the, the, the spare room or the study, not knowing that he was standing like a meter away from me to the left next to the cupboard. And I was going to turn around because I could see into my um, husband's room because there's no door. It's like a huge opening. I, I couldn't see the entire room, but everything looked calm and serene. And I couldn't see snakes or cats or anything. So I was just like, you know, maybe something he, he didn't, you know, get bitten, but the snake is now gone. And so my next thing was going to be to to get hold of a vet or, you know, or something. But uh, at that moment when I was going to turn around, he just suddenly decided to show himself. And he, sorry, he came um, out from behind the, or not behind the cupboard. He was next to the cupboard, but he came out, but very relaxed and like almost, he was like his hands was next to his side and he walked so slowly and he's young um, and very, you know, thin, but I, he didn't look like a child to me. That that I knew because I, I, I'm a teacher and I used to work with children for 23 years and I knew this was not a not a child he's taller than me first I was just like I didn't even lift up the gun I, I what hit me was oh so now this is this is now my this is now when it's going to happen to me you know the home invasion thing and you know they never come alone or or alone they're always in groups of three four to five uh, one of my friends have been attacked and it was 12, 12 people went to her house and tied them up and did horrible things. So, so I know they, they're never alone. So I was, I was afraid that there was more in the house and I just cannot see them at this stage. I was angry. I worked with great things. So I knew how to use the teacher's voice. And he was standing in front of me and I was like, who are you? This is all in one, one sentence. Who are you? What are you doing in my house? How did you get, get in and are you alone? And he said to me, I got in through the window and I'm alone. Then he was just holding his hands up. Not like, you know, in a movie when you say, don't shoot me. It was, he was just raising it a little bit. Like, I don't know what he was doing. I couldn't see any weapons on him. Uh, I did see a computer bag behind him next to the window and um, thought it was his. Later on, we found it was Moria's laptop that he was, he was, um, that he was in the house. We figured out later he was in the house for at least 20 to 30 minutes going through everything on that side of the house, stuffing the bag full of jewelry and fake jewelry, by the way, but he stole my husband's watches and, you know, stuff like that. Monique also says at this point that the window Mongezi squeezed himself into looked out across the customer parking lot of the business next door. This was around 10 a.m. on a weekday. While there are a few mysteries surrounding the man's actions that day, this perhaps is one of the most puzzling. It must have taken him a good while to worm himself through that extremely tight space. How on earth is it possible that no one saw him? 
I don't know where he got the guts to crawl into that window um, in full display of the world, you know, but he must have scoped up our, my house on, and um, figured out that to, he, we, we found a screwdriver outside the window. You try, I'm supposed to try to unscrew the burglar proofing or whatever. We also found out later that he had a very um, bad um, drug habit. I am not sure which drugs, but I know that he needed a lot of money to help him with this habit. And so, he, you know, he had to, to get money somehow. His parents wanted nothing to do with him. So let's pause here and give you some understanding of this. Monique would later discover that the man standing in her house that day was a career criminal. He was 31 years old and he'd been arrested many times for housebreaking. He'd served time in prison and there were warrants of arrest out for him. He was also a drug addict. The reason his parents wanted nothing to do with him was because he had caused chaos with his criminality and his drug use and they simply could not get him back on the straight and narrow as much as they tried. Standing there facing this man in her house, though, Monique knows nothing of this. She has no idea what she's up against. And now, he's moving towards her. Now he was coming at me, like, slowly, very slowly. And I realised that... He's coming at me, but he's not saying anything. He's not looking scared. There's no emotions on his face. He's not speaking to me. And I didn't know what what to do. And I didn't want to say, hey, listen, I'm going to shoot you or whatever. I mean, it's implied by me carrying a weapon in my hand. And um, the gun that I have is a 38 Special. And it had special bullets, dum-dums, which can like, you know, impact for a it would uh, enter and then explode. So if you shoot anybody, you know, in the range of the, the torso area, whatever, whomever is going to go down. That's what my father taught me. You, and that you use these types of bullets because you don't have to be a great shot because then if, like I said, if you hit a person, well, even if you, if you hit him in the arm or the leg, he's, he's going to go down. He's not going to get up again. So I raised my weapon and I, and I said to him, stop, stop moving, I'd stand still. And he would just, he moved a little bit forward and I would say to him, stop, stop moving, stand still. Why, why are you coming towards me? Stand still. And he would not answer me and he would be, there was no fear on his face. As the man slowly moves towards Monique, he doesn't respond to her commands. She says that his completely blank expression made his face look passive. A brief thought flickers through her head. This guy looks like someone I could just sit down and talk to. All she wants is for him to stop moving. She asks him again and again to stop. She asks him why he's coming towards her. He does not reply. I was like so I had so many mixed emotions at that point because I was like, I can I can sit and have a cup of um, whatever you know with this this man and have a chat with him, but now he's not saying anything and he's just come he's just 
walking towards me. I don't want to say coming for me because he didn't, he wasn't coming for me. He was just walking towards me, but that forced me to walk backwards and I'm not well. And I'm, I don't, my balance is not well, you know, it hasn't been lately. So I knew sooner or later I was going to trip over something, you know, there's always a cat or a dog or a, or a carpet or something. I just knew I, I couldn't do this any, I couldn't, we worked out, he forced me about back nine meters. That's how far he pushed me. And, and then by, at that stage, I, I, I thought, okay, wait. And I lifted the gun like now, like really, like I'm going to shoot because remember I could only use one hand. Most the cell phone was in my other hand. When something like this happens to you, you, you really can't think too clearly. You can't think like put down the phone or drop it and use two hands or whatever. Um, I was used to the weight of my gun. So um, I thought that I, I would probably be able to shoot with it with one hand, though I've never done that. But um, also I haven't used my, the last time I sh- took a shot with my gun was in 1993. So I didn't even know if it was working. So then I, cocked the gun and I and and because it's such an enclosed area it was so loud that it 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 actually rattled me and I thought this would stop him dead in his tracks nothing not he didn't even blink and I was like no I, this is not happening and I and I just said to him please please just stop moving I'm begging you just stand still and when he was about a meter and a half away from me he was close enough to slap the gun from my hands or jump at me or whatever. And I knew that this is it. I, I cannot stall any longer. I, I have to make a decision. And um, I didn't want to shoot him. I, I really didn't want to shoot him. But I knew that it was uh, that I don't know what he would do to me if he could you know, if he got hold of the gun or, and I didn't hit him and I didn't want to speculate. So when I just aimed in his direction, looked like the torso direction, like my dad taught me, but I couldn't look at him when I pulled the trigger. I just like averted my eyes a little bit to the right or whatever. And then I, then I pulled the trigger. Monique pulled the trigger and ran to the safety of her bedroom. She has a security gate on her room. She did not check to see whether the man was down. The only thing running through her mind was getting away. She was still convinced that there had to be more people in her house. And I didn't even check if he was going down. I just heard him exhaling like, (sighs) I didn't check because I was now sure that the others were going to come out of their hiding places and they're going to come and get me. So I started to run and I saw that the toilet door was closed and doors, we don't have lots of doors in the house and doors are never closed in any case. And so I was absolutely sure there was somebody in the, in the shower or toilet or whatever so I just got into, ran to my room. I, I was a little bit hysterical by then because I didn't know if I hit him. I didn't know if he was dead. Um, 
you know, your mind says to, your, to yourself, I must have hit him because he made a sound. And, you know, funny, not a normal human sound. And um, so I threw the gun on the bed and, and then I took my cell phone and I found, first I found my husband and he didn't answer. Then I found my sister and she didn't answer. Then I found Peter, that's my sister's ex-husband. Monique eventually gets hold of her ex-brother-in-law. He used to manage the business next door to her house, and she begs him to send staff members from the business to her home. He did his thing, and he was also on a mine, and, but he came, he came, and then I got hold of my sister, and I finally got hold of my husband. By then, I could hear somebody screaming at the front of the house, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. Like I said, this is a, this, this room is so cut off from the rest of the world. And I was just, I could hear something like open up. And I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving my room. I'm not coming out of my room. At this point, police have arrived on the scene. They know only that there's been a shooting. They do not know the circumstances but they know someone is armed in the house. Monique is not convinced that she'll be safe to walk from her room to the front door. She refuses to move despite police screaming for her to open up. An enormous crowd is gathered outside the home. Staff from the business next door throng together with customers, hordes of policemen and paramedics. It's chaos. About ten minutes go by with Monique refusing to move. She's finding it difficult to communicate with the police. Then um, I, I opened my windows. So I just heard then that somebody screamed at me. They want to come in, but I must throw my weapon outside the window before they will enter the the house. So I, I said, I, you know, I screamed at them, I will do that. So they said, Throw out the weapon, throw out the weapon out of the window. So I threw it, I threw it out of the window. And exactly at that moment, when it dropped, when it hit the ground, I could hear lock, you know, the locks broken or whatever. Like I could hear things happening in the front. And then, like a SWAT team, two, two policemen entered um, in the mode where, you know, they are going to, they were going to kill. Police officers clear the home and then approach Monique's bedroom security gate, along with the owner of the house. They demand that she open the gate. Monique refuses, saying that she believes someone is hiding in the toilet. The police officers kick open the bathroom door and clear the room. There's no one there. It would later emerge that before Monique's sister had left the house that morning, she had closed the bathroom door because that's what she was used to doing in her own house. Monique opens the security gate and the second half of her nightmare starts to unfold. I cannot remember much after that. I, I remember sitting in the, in the sitting room and then police came. Now there's a difference between police and in the detective department. They dress differently as well. I didn't know that. I didn't say anything and I wasn't crying. I, I, I knew people were speaking to me, but I, I, uh, sometimes I heard them. Sometimes I didn't. I suppose I was in shock and uh, two 
two policemen came to me and they said to me, they will just stay with me. And you would see like all the time, different personnel and people running from this side to the house, that side of the house. But obviously I couldn't go to that side of the house. I didn't want to go to that side of the house. I didn't ask them if I killed him. I, I didn't. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to be a person at that moment. I, I wasn't a person. I was, I was just something that was that just took a life, maybe. And and um, also, I am now gonna go to jail and all. You know, those thoughts go through your mind. Monique is clearly in severe shock at this point. Some of her family members arrive at the scene, and they are terrified for her. One suggested that her version of the story didn't sound like something she should tell police. Monique insisted that whatever the consequences, she would only tell the truth about what had happened that day. So I did give them a brief statement of, and that's when I must have said the first time, he said he wasn't going to hurt me. But afterwards, I, I couldn't remember that. I also remembered giving a statement, but I couldn't remember anything of what I said. Paramedics came to me and they checked me over and they said to me that as soon as everything is done here, yeah, that I should get to a doctor immediately. And also um, then forensics came in and they, you know, swapped my arms, both arms and hands with for gun residue. And uh, they were very professional. I was very, very, very impressed with the police and, uh, and the detective department. Um, they were they were calm. They treated me with utmost respect. They were so professional and they didn't want to, when my husband arrived, they didn't want to allow him in at first to walk through the crime scene, but eventually they did allow him to come through. And that's the first time I heard I killed this guy. Monique's husband arrives and she finds out that Mongezi is deceased. Despite not being able to look at the man when she shot him, the single bullet she fired went straight into his heart. He died almost immediately. And I said, I, I couldn't believe that. I, I didn't uh, want to speak about it. I just sat there and people that surrounded me saw that I couldn't speak at that moment or I, I was trying to figure out what, what happened. And... Um, Yes, they were there for about four hours and um, lots of things um, was done and said to me. And I don't know, after they left, uh, just before we, we went outside, I, I looked at the area where I shot him and there was just a small, smaller than my hand, pool of blood on the carpet. And uh, then, then, um, Apparently, my brother phoned from London. He works in London. And he saw this article, everything that was happening to me, he saw online. And that was while the body was still even in the house. This is another part of this case that needs focus. Within minutes of this shooting being reported to police, local journalists were on the scene. A photograph was taken of the deceased man by someone present and given to journalists to publish. Monique's brother in London found out what had happened by reading the article before Mongezi's body had even been removed from the scene. 
Monique would later tell me that she and her husband had to threaten to sue a newspaper that had published their full address in the article. At this point, Monique had no idea how the community was going to react to what she had done. She was terrified that someone would come seeking retribution. Her struggles with the media would not end there, though, and their actions raise another very important point that I think this case raises. Days after the shooting, a newspaper would report on the case and state that Monique had been charged with murder. This was a completely false statement and speaks to the fact that clearly that journalist does not understand criminal process. In any death of this nature, a death investigation must be undertaken by police. The fact that an investigation is taking place does not mean that the person responsible for the death has been charged with anything at that point. It simply means that once the investigation is concluded, the evidence will be weighed and it will be determined whether there were any criminal actions involved. Of course, Monique saw this article and freaked out. She'd been told nothing of murder charges. After phone calls to the police, she was able to determine that the journalist had printed false information. That did not make up for the horror she felt in those uncertain days, though. I see this a lot in shootings of this nature, the public get up in arms about police investigating because they think that means the person responsible is being charged with something. And that's not the case. Self-defense has very specific criteria for proof, and it can only be determined whether a case was indeed one of self-defense after a full investigation. The fact that pictures of Mongezi's body were displayed on the internet within such a short period after his death, is disgusting to me. Yes, he was killed during the commission of a crime, and we know that his family was not on great terms with him. But is it fair for them to possibly find out about his death from a media article? As police leave and Monique starts to head out to the doctor for a checkup, something starts to happen that she'd never expected, and that, to this day, she doesn't really know how to deal with. And afterwards, as I left the house, um, just like that in my pajamas, but as I went, uh, people knew about this, what was happening, because I lived two, two kilometers away from the police station. And when I arrived at the doctor, they all knew already, you know, who I, you know, who I was and, and what happened, more or less what happened. And people would come over to me and say to me, we're so proud of you. And, and I was just, I, I, I couldn't make a connection in my brain with killing and pride. That, that just didn't match for me at that moment. Even the, the, the pharmacy next door, people sent me messages of, you were so brave, you, that, it's wonderful what you did. And, and I remember on scene, some of the police came to me, the, the detectives and some of the police, the police south, the light blue uniforms, told me that I did the right thing. 
he was not supposed to be in my house and I should not feel bad about it. And for once they feel they had a good day because almost every, every crime scene that they leave, that uh, people, you know, were killed and tortured and they would almost never catch the, you know, the suspects. And for once they, the scene where the suspect was killed basically instantly. And even though I was traumatized, I wasn't hurt. And for them, that was a good day. I remember the commander sitting here across from me and saying something like, job well done, congratulations. Um, but you know, you, you, you don't really know. I, never, I still don't know what to think about that. While the thought of congratulating someone for the taking of a life fills me with as much revulsion as it did Monique, I think this speaks to the general trauma that South Africans face from the high levels of crime in our country. We're so used to people being victims of crime. We almost don't bat an eyelid anymore when people are victims of home invasion, tied up, perhaps beaten and horribly traumatised. Just as Monique slept with a gun under her mattress, fearing a possible home invasion, we've all come to feel that it's almost inevitable that at some point we'll be victims of crime. We feel helpless, targeted and scared. So when a victim of a home invasion is able to get the upper hand and defend themselves, I think that it almost feels like a victory against criminality for all of us. I don't think that any one of those people were celebrating the death of Mongezi. The same would have happened if he'd simply been injured and hospitalised. I think in that moment, Monique's actions represented hope for all those impacted by crime, that maybe it's not inevitable that we have to be victims. As for the police, some may think it's unprofessional that they would tell Monique she did the right thing and that they saw the death as something positive in their day. But these men and women have to see innocent victims of crime daily. They have to stand over the bodies of men, women and children killed in violent crimes. They have to comfort a woman that's been raped whose life will never be the same again. And they have to do all that with the knowledge that there's no guarantee their perpetrator will never do it again. What is more horrifying for me than the fact that Monique was congratulated by people is the fact that we are in this position at all, where the death of a person is seen as a victory because we are so deeply and wholly overwhelmed by the scourge of violent crime in our country. But I do want to say this, that I couldn't deal with the fact that I, that I took a life. You know, it's just pure speculation what would have happened if, if he got hold of me. We don't know. We didn't, I didn't know who this person was. And the, that, that 23rd, that 24th was a public holiday. I can't remember you know, which public holiday it was. But so I was at home and, and I was on medication. But the, the next day I went to see my own doctor 
And also we went to the detective department. Um, my husband went in and he found out who the, who the person was that came into my house and he was there for about an hour. Then he came out and he said to me, okay, do you want to hear the details? And I said, yes, I think because I need to make peace with, you know, what was happening. And he said to me, this uh, man was 31 years old. He already served four years in prison for um, house breakings. And um, he had three warrants out for his uh, arrest. And this one was now added, even though he was dead, this was now added posthumously because uh, he was, you know, in my house. And um, he did never hurt people, but he wasn't a good person. He had an uncle in the family, um, a, which apparently that day came here and identified the body. But I knew nothing of what happened that side of the world basically I was in this corner and um I just but I couldn't get over the fact that this person this and 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 I, and I couldn't understand why he didn't stop why didn't he why didn't he stop when I I mean if I faced a gun like that and it, a cocked gun there is no way that I would just carry on and I finally um last week I went to see the person in charge of my warrant officer I'm not going to mention his name but you know, handling my case. And afterwards, when we were done, also took about four hours. You have to tell them everything and then they write everything down. And I asked him, can you just tell me, sir, you know, all the experience of criminals and, and also they knew about this Mungunie, he was well known. I said to him, why didn't he stop? What What made this guy say, you know, he was like serene. There was no fear. Didn't flinch when I cocked the gun. And he said to me, you know what? He's a criminal. He didn't think you know how to use a gun or that that gun was going to work and he was going to do criminal things to you. For Monique, this was a stumbling point she could not get over. She could not comprehend why Mongezi showed absolutely no fear at that moment. All she wanted him to do was stop moving, but he refused. Instead, he moved towards her, eventually coming within arm's reach of her before she was forced to fire. The policeman Monique spoke to was familiar with Mongezi, and I think that his response does hold some answers as to why the man reacted the way he did. Later on, Monique and I would figure out another piece of this puzzle together. Monique knows that Mongezi would not have wanted to go back to prison. He was unable to escape while Monique was standing there, because he'd come through such a small space, and all the doors were locked. The only way he could get out of there would be to immobilise Monique. Take her gun, perhaps, and who knows what else. Monique says over and over again that she does not want to speculate about what he may have done to her. She acknowledges that he had not hurt anyone during his crimes in the past, but he'd also never been cornered. Criminals that do inflict harm on their victims during home invasions don't start off that way. They escalate, just like other types of criminals do. First, it's a handbag snatched off a table in view of an open front door. 
then they work their way up to breaking in when no one's there. Then they build up enough courage to break in, despite the fact that there are people home. And eventually, homeowners are harmed in one way or another. Mongezi was a desperate man. He was a drug addict, and he did not want to go back to jail. Desperate people do things that don't follow their historical behavior patterns. You know, you watch movies and you read about all this, and I always thought, you know, how would I react if something like this would happen to me? And, and my mind would always go like I would become hysterical because I know the things that they do to the women especially. And, um, but when it happens, it's, it, your mind is in a different space. I can't believe how calm I stayed throughout the entire ordeal. I took charge of the situation, even though I didn't feel like I was in charge, but I protected myself and it was more or less declared self-defense, though the case is still going to take two years because the ballistics must be handed in and the autopsy and all that, all, you know, all those things. And then the judge must sign off on it. And that's still going to take two years. It was hard for me afterwards. I cried for days. I had back flashes. Like every few seconds, I would see him like emerge from behind the cupboard or walking towards me and I couldn't sleep. I like for at least a month, the flashes were the worst. It's, I still get it. And every time I do get it, I start crying because it's not normal to, to find a, a very, um, closed house it's not possible to enter basically uh you know and and then you find you find um, somebody in your house that that means you're home monique has not been for professional counseling after this incident she expresses though that she thinks previous traumas and how those incidents impacted her psychologically and spiritually may have helped her deal with this she also finds it amazing that on the one day she felt so ill that she actually considered leaving her gate open. That would be the day that someone targeted her home. She firmly believes that if that gate had been left open, she would have woken up to find Mongezi standing next to her. The best thing is to just stay calm. It's, it is really actually impossible. When you face an intruder or, or somebody that you think is going to kill you, 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 you don't know what to do. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And right up to the last second, when I pulled that trigger, I still didn't think I was going to shoot him. So, but, but because I stayed calm, and that's what the police said to me, because I stayed calm, because I stood up for myself, that's why I'm here today. When I interview people, especially about experiences like this, I like to let them just tell their story. I don't believe in interrupting people when they're in the flow, as that's when you get much more information than you would in a question and answer session. After they've got everything out that they wanted to say, then I'll come in with questions and comments that I've made note of while they're speaking. It's at this point in our conversation that some things fall into place for Monique and I. I'd mentioned that one of the things she'd struggled to understand was why Mongezi had showed no fear. 
why he had reacted completely inappropriately to the threat of the gun, why he had continued to approach her despite her warnings to stop. When Monique first contacted me, my first thought was that this guy was in there to steal stuff for drug money. Not all home invaders are drug addicts, of course, and not all drug addicts steal to fund their habits. But I've had enough experience with people suffering from substance abuse to spot the signs of desperation. Mongezi broke in through a tiny space. He showed no concern for the fact that there was a parking lot with people coming and going right in front of the place where he was gaining entry. That screamed desperation to me. If he was just breaking in to steal because that's what he did, he would have chosen a more secluded place. When Monique said that police confirmed that Mongezi had a severe drug addiction, something else fell into place too. While we don't know what drugs Mongezi was on, we do know that they had to be pretty heavy if he was stealing to fund the habit. Hard drugs like heroin, tuk, mandrax and the like change the way you process emotions. They change the way you react to situations. Your reactions are not what would be considered normal. I told Monique that I think Mongezi was either high on drugs when he broke into her house or he'd been using very recently. This, at least in my opinion, accounts for his blank expression, his risk-taking behaviour, and the fact that he had no reaction when Monique cocked her gun. Mongezi was not thinking like a logical person in that moment. His fear was dampened by the drugs, and a person with no fear is very, very dangerous. This combined with the fact that he was a career criminal, in my opinion, explains his behaviour. Although Monique had been aware of his drug addiction, and having worked with children, she's well aware of the effect that hard drugs have on the brain. She hadn't yet put those two pieces together. Until she told her story. When Monique spoke to me, I was one of the very few people that she told the entire story to from start to finish. In doing so, she was able to solve her own mystery. I believe. And this is why I think it is so important for people to talk about their trauma to someone that is willing to listen. Because when you lay that story out and someone with no other connection to you listens to it, they may just spot things that you'd never considered. And that may just be the key to a little bit of closure. Monique's gun has been sent for ballistics testing, which is a mandatory part of the investigation. She was told that this could take up to two years, as all ballistic tests are sent to one centre and listed according to the priority of the case. This case would be lower priority, as it's not unsolved, and there is already significant evidence of self-defence. She feels extremely vulnerable without her weapon, 
especially since she's ill. But she takes heed in her faith and feels that she is protected even without it. The fear, though, remains. And even though I do believe that I was protected they, that day by God and everything, I can still feel fear. It, it's not uncommon, and I'm sure it's because maybe I've got PTSD, you know? Every little, the first few months, every little sound, every, I would jump like 10 meters into the air, and it's getting better day by day. That I can tell people, you will get through this. You think you won't. I didn't think so. I honestly, I wanted to die the, that first few weeks I, I, because I couldn't deal with me, Monique, you know, took another human being's life, even though it was in South Sins, it was like, I'm now known as Monique that, that killed somebody. And I prayed to God and I said to him, forgive me for, for killing that person because you know, it's, a, it's a commandment that you're not allowed to break, but God understands. And that's what the, that some people told me that I did ask for forgiveness. So fine, that's, that's fine. So I must just now take it day by day. And, and I want to thank you for inviting me on, you know, onto your podcast or, or whatever, because just by telling me the thing about the drugs is, it's like a little puzzle has just fallen in place for me, you know, for me, the way Munguni was behaving because I could, I couldn't explain that away. And that I got a lot of, lot of nightmares because of that, 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 um, the fearlessness on his face, that I'm not scared of you. And, the, and, the you know, approaching me, approaching me and, 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 at first, I thought he wanted me to kill him so that he didn't have to go back to jail. That's what I thought afterwards. But my husband said to me, if he didn't want to go back to jail, he would have said, okay, ma'am, um, okay, don't shoot. You know, wait, I will stand here and, you know, whatever. I don't know. Monique, having grown up and being comfortable with guns her entire life, feels that the weapons have an unnecessary stigma attached to them. That's the other thing. You should always be vigilant. Don't ever, ever think because of this alarm and that alarm and this video and CCTV and whatever that you are safe. Just be always so vigilant. And there's nothing wrong with having or owning a gun. It, I know it's stigma for some people, but I didn't ever use my gun for anything except when I traveled and um you know, when I went into dangerous areas and otherwise it was just with me when I was alone. So, so, you know, really, um, if, if it's possible, get rid of that thing of a, a gun, gun, a gun kills people. No, people kill people, you know, people kill people. And if I didn't have that gun that day, I don't know, story might have ended differently. Another interesting thing about this incident is the behavior of Rambo, the little dog that alerted Monique, to the fact that something was happening in the house. Monique says that there would be no reason for him to have been afraid of seeing a stranger in their home. They often have friends over, and he socialized with many different types of people. She believes that the only reason he would have behaved that way is if Mongezi had hurt him. Perhaps the dog was standing and watching him, and Mongezi became concerned that he would bark. Perhaps he kicked him or threw something at him. Monique says that if he hadn't done that, she probably never would have known he was in the house. 
I asked Monique at one point if she was angry at Mongezi for having put her in the position where she had to take his life. She says that she's never felt any anger towards him. Around Christmas, she considered contacting his family to express her condolences, but she was convinced not to. I think that this was probably for the best. The story has two sides to it. The trauma that Monique now has to live with is one side, and the other is the difficulty that Mongezi's family will undoubtedly feel in dealing with his death. They knew that he was up to no good, and they tried to stop him as best they could. But he was still their son, and their grief at his loss must be very complex when they consider how his drug addiction and criminality could have escalated that day. It's very sad that this man found himself in that position, and circumstances beyond his control likely played a large role in him having gone down the wrong path, but he did make those choices. He chose to break into Monique's house that day. He chose not to stop when she asked him to, and to protect herself in a country where people are raped and killed in their homes on a daily basis. Monique found herself having to react to his choices and make her own. I wanted to tell Monique and Mongezi's story because I think it highlights some very important themes in our country, and really, these are global issues too. I'd like to thank Monique for being brave enough to share her story with us and wish her all of the best in her future healing. I'd also like to express my condolences to Mongezi's family. You have lost a loved one, and that is not forgotten. Thank you for listening to Monique's story. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.